We'll now turn to the Word of God, and we're going to do something a little different um, this season of Advent. Advent's an opportunity to mix things up a little, and we're going to try and do that this year. And so I'm going to, I'm going to be starting a new series, which I'll talk a little bit about here in just a moment. Obviously, we're going to be focusing on um, the themes of coming and the themes of that we think about during the Advent season, the story of the birth of Jesus and all of those things. But we're going to do it in a little bit of a different way uh, for the next few weeks. But first, I'm going to invite Aaron forward. It's Aaron Lorette. And he's going to be reading out of Matthew chapter 1, verses 17 to 25. And this is that story um, about the birth of Christ. So, thanks, Aaron. morning. Matthew 1. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way, when his mother, Mary, had been betrothed to Joseph Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus." For he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord had commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. The grass withers and the flower fades. Thank you, Aaron. When I texted Aaron earlier in the week about the reading, he kind of chuckled and was like, is that all? (laughs) We've had a number of long readings uh, over the past couple of months, and so we got a good good chuckle out of that. Something a little shorter uh, for us this morning. Well, this morning we're going to kick off a new series for the season of Advent. Again, just four short weeks, and Advent technically started last Sunday, but it's a little bit of a different Sunday with having uh, some of the guests that we did with us. So we'll take this right up to Christmas Sunday as well. But just to mix things up a bit, during this four weeks, we're going to look at four well-known Christmas hymns. The goal here is not to treat the hymns as scripture because they are not scripture, but to look at them through the lens of scripture and perhaps, hopefully, uh, see what's there to learn. Truth is something that comes to us in many genres. When you open up the Bible, you'll find narrative, historical narrative. You'll find stories. There's history, there's letters, there's poetry, there's songs, and there's visions. The Bible is filled with all kinds of interesting ways of speaking truth to us, right? 
And the people of God across the centuries have come up with many interesting ways of celebrating and remembering the truth. And one of those is through song. Song can be a tremendously powerful way, not just learning the truth, memorizing it. Many of you who have kids will know that, or maybe you still remember some of the things from your childhood that were sung, right? Little ditties, little songs that maybe you learned when you were uh, younger. It can be a powerful way of remembering things, but also it can be a really powerful tool for getting things into our hearts, right? So they don't remain just up here in the academic, cerebral realm. It can help get it down here. God's truth is something to be sung. And we see this in the Bible. So I hope that this short series on a few Advent or Christmas hymns will be a blessing to us and help us not only appreciate the hymns more, but increase your love for Jesus. So to get some things down into our hearts. I want you to think of the hymns like windows, okay? Do any of you have a favorite window in your home or apartment where you stay? Maybe there's a place you like to sit in the morning and drink your coffee. Well, up at the Parsonage, I just love, there's, there's a bay window in the back of the house. I love that spot. That's where our family eats, kind of right by there. We're in that area. Maybe you have a window that you really love in your home. Now, usually, you love the window not because of the window itself. Well, here you might, you know, our stained glass is pretty in itself. The window itself is very beautiful here in the building. But probably the ones at your home, it's not the window, per se, that you like, but it's what it helps you see, right? There's something outside, beyond the window. You're seeing through the window to something else. You love it because it lets you see something, maybe a particular angle or viewpoint of some place or thing that you really love. Think of these hymns that we'll be pondering over the next few weeks like windows, giving you a view, perhaps, of something that you love. In this case, a view of God, a view of Jesus, a view of the work he has done for us. So maybe that's a helpful way of thinking about uh, this series, like windows that we are looking through at the truth. Well, this morning's hymn is O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. This will be the one we're going to ponder for a bit together. And Pupilos did a great job of singing that. Sorry if you got a little curveball there with the, uh, the lyrics and all of that. That's always risky because there's so many different hymnal versions. There's the one we have, and there's like modern, you know, the more popularized songs that maybe you hear on the radio or whatever. And then there's CCLI, which is this licensing group where we get all our lyrics from. And they're not always the same. There's like 40 versions of some of these old uh, traditional hymns. So anyway, sorry if there was a curveball there, guys. We've already sung some of the stanzas together in the service. And I hope um, maybe that this is a somewhat familiar, maybe to most of us, one that we've heard before or sung. If not, this will be uh, some new content for you. But you should see the text printed for you in the bulletin. So it was in the actual um, order of service. But then near the back, you'll see the fuller version in, in the back. There are seven stanzas in the original. And again, versions you've heard may differ from what is there, okay? So that's all right. In my reading, I discovered that while the hymn as we find it today was first published in English in the mid-19th century, its story begins a long time before that as a Gregorian chant. 
Some say the chant goes back as far as the 8th or 9th century even. This hymn is, or parts of it, are nearly 1,200 years old. Is that not amazing? 1,200 years old. History tells us that beginning the week before Christmas, these monks um, would, would sing this, this Gregorian chant-like song one verse a day to prepare their hearts and minds for Christmas. So again, seven stanzas, seven lines. I don't know if they would sing the whole stanza or just a portion of it or what, but they would use these seven thoughts as a way of preparing their hearts for Christmas the week before Christmas Day. And my hope, again, is that this window, this hymn, will help us likewise prepare for Christmas. Now, maybe you're wondering, why in the world do we need to prepare for Christmas? I mean, that's a legitimate question. Why do we prepare for Christmas? Why do we have a season, or the church has for centuries, set aside time to prepare in the season called Advent? Why? It's okay if you're not a part of a church tradition that has done that. I know this is fairly new for me. Um, I come from a church tradition that did not... uh, Uh, participate or acknowledge uh, Advent. That's okay. But I've come to appreciate it. I've come to really appreciate these seasons of preparation. But why do we prepare? Just to offer a quick thought for you as we ponder this together. Take Thanksgiving as an illustration. This will be kind of a silly illustration, but maybe this will help a little bit. Now, when you think about Thanksgiving, one of the things you probably do, if you're like me, in the days leading up to the big Thanksgiving meal is you eat a little less, right? You don't eat, you're not gorging yourself in the meals leading up to the big one, right? You're eating a little less. Some of you might even fast the night before, the morning of, skip breakfast maybe on Thanksgiving Day. Well, why? To prepare for the big meal, right? So you can really feast, right? If you eat a lot before the big meal... You won't really be able to enjoy all the food at the big meal. In other words, feasting requires a little preparation to really do it right, right? If you're going to feast, requires some preparation. This is not only true literally, but it is also true spiritually. Christmas is a spiritual feast. But if we are to truly feast upon the glories of Christmas, then some preparation is required. We can't just go about our business like nothing's happening. There's nothing special or unique. It's just another day. We must prepare. Some preparation is required. And Advent is a period of time in which we seek to spiritually prepare ourselves for Christmas. Now, this might look different for you than for me and for your family or for others, and that's okay. But we should prepare. Lent is another season. That is a season of preparation, and in that case for Easter. But I hope looking at these hymns will help us to prepare our hearts and minds for the Christmas season. Now, when we look at the hymn before us today, I think its strength, personally, and maybe you see something, some other aspect that really draws you in about this particular hymn, but I think its strength is in allowing us to understand that God's rescue mission His plan to save people from their sins is something that is still unfolding. And this is one of the strengths of this hymn, this beautiful song. It is not complete. The the plan of redemption is still underway. It puts us 
in the middle of the unfolding story. We're in the middle of this story in a beautifully creative way. Again, viewing this hymn as a kind of window, this window allows us to see that God's plan of redemption is unfolding in various stages. And Christmas is smack in the middle of it. This is why we read the passage from Matthew 1 this morning. It reminds us of the story of of Christmas, that it's something that's been unfolding for a long time. I mean, we could have read the whole genealogy. And again, I was kind of joking with Aaron over text about, yeah, maybe we should read the whole genealogy. It's showing us, right, that this is a part of a much larger unfolding story. It's been unfolding for a long time, going way back even to Abraham in Matthew's account. Luke is in Luke chapter 3 is going to take it back all the way to Adam. Right? Of course, we know that it has been unfolding since the earliest, earliest days. But the point is, this is an unfolding plan, and the story of Christmas is a part of a larger story. Christmas is just one chapter in that larger story, and this hymn beautifully captures that. Well, let's take a look now at how this hymn uh, does this. And I hope, again, this will be a window to, to help us as we prepare for Christmas. The main way it does this, again, in my opinion, is by juxtaposing joy and sorrow. In other words, putting joy and sorrow, two things that normally aren't mingled or mixed. We think of these as like oil and water. Joy and sorrow, those don't go together. It brings them together in this really beautiful, beautiful way. Instead of thinking about these two things as opposites that can't live together, this hymn continually throws the two together. Each stanza starts with an O. You can see it there in your bulletin if you pull it out. An O of, of some kind of desire or groaning. O come, O come. It says over and over again. It repeats that theme, that phrase, implying there's something that is longed for that has not yet arrived. The hymn is conveying a sense of need, of, of longing, of desire. There's something lacking, something needed that is yet to show up. This is a hymn that groans and longs after some kind of an expected solution. This is kind of like being on the side of the road stranded. Any of y'all had that experience before? Side of the road stranded. Me more than once. Definitely here in Vermont a handful of times. Your vehicle's broken down and you've just gotten off the phone. Maybe you've just gotten off the phone with some like a, uh, AAA or some other towing agency or whatever company. And they've told you, ah, it'll be between two and three hours before we'll get there with help. So you've got a problem. Help is coming, but it's not quite, ar- quite arrived yet. Ever been in that position, right? And until it comes, there's this sense of longing and waiting Maybe you were on the way to an appointment. And maybe, you know, something for work and you're wondering, is my boss, you know, going to be upset? You know, am I going to have a job? You know, you're wrestling with all of those things. You're probably going to miss the appointment. You're dealing with all that stuff in your head, that anxiety. If you broke down in in an unfortunate location, maybe you're worried about safety. Maybe you're in a compromising place. Maybe your phone battery is dead. You have no way of communicating. If you've ever been in that position before, you understand that feeling, right? Well, in this hymn, there's that kind of feeling on a much larger scale, okay? Help has been promised. 
Okay? Help is coming, but has not yet arrived. And because of that, there's this longing, even this, even sorrow, we could say. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here. It's that word mourning. There's sorrow. There's captivity. There's slavery. There's bondage happening here. Here we have a cry going up to God in that refrain, which is said over and over again, from the perspective of old Israel. Right? Israel mourns in captivity. A people in exile. A people that have been made slaves to a foreign power. And they're mourning and groaning after their deliverance. A deliverance that they cannot bring about themselves, but yet has been promised. So there's sorrow. There's mourning. There's pain. But yet immediately after communicating that longing and that groaning, the hymn calls us to do what? Rejoice. Rejoice. Emmanuel shall come to you, O Israel. Right in with the sorrow and the mourning is joy, a call of joy. Not necessarily because it's arrived, but because it's been promised. A really beautiful um, book that talks about the backstory of these hymns. I intended to bring it out and I forgot in the fray of various things this morning. I've got this book on hymns that kind of gives the story of, of, of how these hymns developed and over the years and whatnot. Maybe some of the thoughts or, or moments that led to the, to the writing of the hymn and so on. That um, book I've got in my office suggests that the refrain, that, that refrain, O come, O come, that leads into rejoice, rejoice. Emmanuel shall come to you, O Israel. That, that that refrain is echoing Zechariah 9 9. And that verse says, some of you will recognize this one. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming. There's that word coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He's coming. He's coming on a donkey, which is kind of interesting, right? Those of you who are familiar with the New Testament story know this is speaking of the triumphal entry when Jesus would come into Jerusalem at that final Passover in the last week of his life. We know that promise was fulfilled in that moment, right? But in this hymn, there's an awareness that Israel has been given promises like that one. That was pre-Christ, before Jesus had come before the Savior had come, the Deliverer. There, was the, there were these promises from God. And those promises should give them hope and joy even among sorrow. Even in exile. There's this coming King who's going to bring salvation. But this joy is not the joy of joy to the world, the Lord. It's not that joy, right? We'll talk about that one next week. That joy is energetic, peppy, jubilant. Okay, right? It's an exuberant kind of joy. The joy here in this song is a longing, groaning joy that's mingled with sorrow. And I think if we're honest here, I mean, most of us hopefully can look inside and be really honest, that this is our experience, is it not, in this life? And even in this season, there's joy, but there's also sorrow and pain. There's a lot of mess. 
And we feel that at Christmas, don't we? Many of us really feel that at Christmas time. But maybe you're thinking, wait a minute. Pastor, hasn't Emmanuel come? So is there more to this hymn than just old Israel longing for the coming Messiah? Hasn't he come? Pastor, isn't that why we're here? Why are we singing songs about old Israel? We're not old Israel. Isn't that what Matthew 1 is showing us? That this long-awaited-for promised person has been born? Well, I'm glad you asked, okay? (laughs) Yes, he has come. (laughs) He is the one that all of these titles mentioned in this hymn are pointing to. And if you have your little leaflet there, feel free to open it up. Again, I'm sorry if we ran a few short and some of you don't have it. He is Emmanuel, right? That's what we're singing. That's what we're kind of thinking about. That's in Matthew 1 right there. Jesus is this Emmanuel, this God with us, which we read about this morning. He is the wisdom from on high. He is the rod of Jesse, prophesied in Isaiah 11. He is the day spring spoken of in Luke 1. He is the key of David from Isaiah 22. He is the desire of nations mentioned in Haggai 2. Jesus is all of these things. And he has come. And he has come. And I'd like to unpack all of those for you. We don't have time for all of that this morning. But he is also yet to come. And here's the beauty of this him, in my opinion. I just love how this hymn captures both of these vantage points. And we can see the different moments in God's unfolding plan. We see clearly the stages of redemption, we might call it, unfolding. Well, what are those stages? Let's very quickly together look at what those stages are together this morning. There's many different ways of talking about the stages of the plan of God. But here's a very simple description. Hopefully that will help you maybe remember kind of God's plan as it unfolds. The first one is creation. Creation. God created everything and it was beautiful and pure in the beginning. Of course, it's not anymore, is it? It's beautiful and pure in the beginning. The writer of our hymn alludes to this stage in the second stanza, which interestingly, in the original, in the old Latin chants, was the first stanza. And the O Come, O Come, Emmanuel was the end of the hymn. So in the original, the first was O Come, O Wisdom, from on high. And in the Bible, wisdom is often connected with creation. You'll see this in a number of places throughout the Bible. And it says, who ordered all things mightily. Again, you might have different wording if you're looking at a different translation. There's a number of them out there. But come wisdom. The one who ordered things beautifully, mightily in the beginning, come to us. Right? So you see creation. Then you'll see fall. This is the second big moment in in redemptive history, the fall. This one is touched on throughout the hymn, but we see it especially in stanza four, perhaps. Man and woman have sinned. They've strayed from God's commands and have earned death and hell. O come, thou rod of Jesse. Free thine own from Satan's tyranny. From depths of hell thy people save and give them victory over the grave. Right? 
because of our sin, we're separated from God and we're destined to die, right? The wages of sin is death, the Bible says. Okay? We've all earned that. So it's a cry, come and save from death and hell. And then the third stage is redemption. So we've got creation. God made everything fall. Man falls into sin. We're worthy of his judgment and death. And then redemption is the third stage. Because of our sins, we're separated from God, cannot be with him. Emmanuel, God with us, has come and opened wide the way to heaven. This is the part of the story we remember at Christmas time, that God came down to us, which again is what Emmanuel means. God with us, and he grew to be a man and obeyed God perfectly in every way. And then he took our punishment and sins upon himself at the cross, securing redemption for all who believe and trust in him. That's redemption. We see this. Oh, come thou key of David. Come and open wide our heavenly home. Make safe the way that leads on high and close the path to misery. Right? Sin leads to death. Misery. Christ came that we might have life and that more abundantly. And then the final stage. Creation, fall, redemption. Final stage is consummation. What we might call glory. This is the one chapter of the story that is left out in our hymn. And again, it's a part of the beauty of the hymn, that there's this longing after that. We're not there yet. It's coming. He's going to come and make all things new and fix all the junk and mess. But we're not there yet. It's the final chapter, the chapter when Emmanuel will come again and make his dwelling with man. We will live forever together in the new heavens and new earth. All things will be made new. And he will finish the work he started. We long for that day. This is why this hymn is so appropriate. It captures our groaning and our longing after that final stage when Jesus will come again and make all things new. So it is right for us today, not just old Israel, it is right for us today to sing and pray, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. It is both a prayer from the perspective of old Israel, longing for the coming Messiah, But it is also a prayer of the new Israel, which includes us, you and me. We've been grafted into this Jewish tree, the Bible teaches. We are a part of Israel now. We are this new Israel. Includes the church. And I don't believe God is done with the Jews yet personally, right? I think there's going to be a mass influx of Jews at some point into the kingdom of God. That would be another discussion for another time. But we can pray, right? Jesus, please come back and make all things new. Now, come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. Okay, well, maybe you're thinking, all right, well, what does this matter? So what? This is what every preacher has to ask himself when he gets to the, at some point in the message. So what? All right. What does this matter? Well, this matters because, I mean, for a number of reasons, and I hope you already see why it matters, but, but it helps us position ourselves in history. It gives us a perspective on past, present, and future in this plan of God as it unfolds. And I think it rebukes two common extremes that are very prevalent in the church today. Two extremes which are very prevalent. The first extreme is the extreme that lives in the depths of constant sorrow. Okay, the, the constant sorrow and negativity and discouragement and cynicism and those sorts of things. Folks in this camp struggle to realize the magnitude of the coming of Christ. They look at the world and say, well, it's all going to hell. It's all messed up. Look at it. Ah! Right? 
folks in that camp are more on that end, right? They struggle to see any good, struggle to see God's plan unfolding. They struggle to see the significance that Christ has come. He has come. In the words of John Piper, he writes this, the final blood is shed. The debt is paid. Forgiveness is purchased. God's wrath is removed. Adoption is secured. The down payment is in the bank. The first fruits of the harvest are in the barn. The future is sure. The joy is great. That's the first coming. All of those things are true. There is much to rejoice in. So let's rebuke those thoughts in us that are constantly negative and cynical. That's one extreme. Then the other extreme would be perhaps the extreme that expects to live on the mountaintop all the time. This camp is in the camp of, I would say, like your best life now, right? This camp is the camp that never laments, that tries to never weep, that glosses over problems. Okay, the, the, the very real and incredible pain that is all around us. This mistake forgets that Christ has not come back yet. Or He's coming again, right? The end is not yet. Perhaps is what this camp struggles with. Again, in the words of John Piper, death still today snatches away. Disease still makes us miserable. Calamity still strikes. Satan still prowls. Flesh still wars against the spirit. Sin still indwells. And we still groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. As we wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. As we wait for the final deliverance from the wrath to come. As we wait for the hope of righteousness. The longing continues. We are still waiting and longing. This is the true posture of Christmas. The mingling of joy and sorrow. He's come, but he's still yet to come. And we live in that tension. We rejoice, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 10, we are sorrowful, yet we are always rejoicing. This is the posture of Christmas. And what a reminder of these things that we have in the communion table. Here we have joy and sorrow linked perfectly. The sorrow of knowing that Emmanuel would come the first time, not to reign as a conquering king, but to die and give his life for us. <laughs> that our sin was so serious, our treason so great, that it cost the Son of God his life. Yet joy in knowing that Christ willingly came and paid the price. He did that for us in love, not out of obligation, but in love. He came. And because of his sacrifice, we now have fellowship with God. All of that is right there in this table. Joy and sorrow both at the communion table this morning. And in this table, both of these things come together and they preach to us that this is the posture of Christmas. We're going to turn to the table now as we ponder these things. And I want to just invite you to pause in prayer and prepare your hearts now as we come to the Lord's Supper. And take a moment and
ponder these things in your hearts. Maybe unload your burden or there's a sin struggle or whatever it is you're thinking about and dealing with right now. Confess it to God as we prepare for the table. Lord, we pray as we prepare our hearts to come to the table that that the that both this joy and this sorrow would be known and felt in the right way as we come. Those who struggle with perhaps depression, despair, anxiety, helplessness, fear. Help them as they come to the table to know that you came and they, that you came for them. Grant them trust. Grant them the gift of faith. Grant them, Lord, rest as they come to the table. For those that maybe forget that somehow suffering is a very, very real part of of the normal and average person's life. Maybe some have been given just a very blessed and fortunate lot and it's easy to to not understand those who, who, who struggle deeply, those who perhaps dwell in the fringes or deal with poverty or other issues, Lord, that help those folks to understand the place of suffering in this in-between stage we're in, where joy is mingled with sorrow and we wait on your coming. So Lord, you do all of those things that only you can do as we come to this table, Lord, as we partake of the body and the blood. That Lord, these common elements, we pray, would be to us, the body and blood, and that they would be a means of grace and strengthen us, nourish us, teach us, Remind us, encourage us, humble us, embolden us. All of those things that only you can do, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.